Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak today to David Cates, who is the CEO of Denison Mines. They're a uranium junior miner with assets in the Athabasca Basin. They've released their quarterly recently. We talked through that and obviously the macro story in the market since we last spoke in February. They do have some income. Uh, they do have issues with uh, permitting, um, but they and they've also raised some money recently. So we talk about how he's managing to juggle things in these rather uncertain times. Enjoy the podcast. Hey, David, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing great, Matt. How are you? Yeah, not bad, not bad. Been a while. Spoke to you in February, but um, the world of uranium has been in turmoil, ups and downs, positives, and all sorts of things going on. It's fascinating, I suppose. It feels like, uh, feels like an eternity ago, given yeah. how much has happened <laughs> in that short period of time. Yeah, it's, it's so insane. I, I'm, I'm really glad that we can uh, connect because there's lots, geez, lots to talk about. There's a lot to talk about. Um, but when we kick off with that one minute summary, and then we'll pick it up from there. Yeah, sure. Well, so so Denison is uh, a uranium development exploration company focused in the Athabasca Basin uh, in northern Saskatchewan and uh, our flagship asset, 90% owned Wheeler River project. Uh, this project is positioned to be the next new uranium mine, uh, large scale in the world with potentially lowest OPEX costs and lowest all-in costs in, in, the, in the industry. Uh, all about bringing uh, the world's lowest cost mining method uh, for uranium in situ recovery to our super high-grade Phoenix deposit and, and building that as the first ISR mine for uranium in Canada. Okay. Before we get into your quarterlies, which I know you know came out of uh, recently, um, let's just talk about the macro situation because I've not talked about it with you. I've talked about it with seemingly everyone, but not you. So what was your take on the Nuclear Fuel Working Group announcement? Yeah, look, I mean, it was not really a big surprise. Um, you know, we've been following this for... <laughs> It's two years now um, since they launched that 232 petition, those guys in the U.S. And uh, at the end of the day, I think anything that was material had already been really released on that. And, and the really the big mover is that uh, U.S. uranium stockpile, strategic stockpile, which we, we had uh, been aware of a few months earlier from the budget announcements from the Trump administration. So uh, at the end of the day, um, I think it's good news because we've just seen the uncertainty lifted there's no more mystery about what's in that report and at the end of the day with in terms of what's in it it's really just new demand met with u.s supply and it's not that big or that constructive or that meaningful to the broader market and that was our big concern was um would something come into the, the broader picture that would throw off you know the fundamentals of the space bring mines on that should not produce and have them affect the the supply demand picture globally and that's that's definitely not happening here so you oh, right i see what you mean so you thought there might be a chance that the u.s government might just throw a curveball in there and make things difficult for canadian uh uranium companies yeah, if we had seen you know tariffs or um quotas which is what was pitched originally uh, the the impact could have been f much broader, um, you know, and, and anything that would have increased the cost of an import from Canada would have been negative to a denison, uh, and certainly anything that would have required U.S. utilities to buy a certain amount from U.S. producers uh, would have been negative to nuclear energy broadly. So 
you know, the fact that we haven't gone to either of those, and people would have argued Canadians would have been exempt, you know, they're friendly with the U.S., and that all might have been true. But there was a lot of risk and uncertainty around that. Now we see there's no tariffs, there's no quotas. Really what it boils down to is the U.S. government saying, yes, we want to support the nuclear fuel cycle in the U.S. domestically. And one specific measure is that they'll buy $150 million a year um, if it's approved annually in the budgeting process uh, from U.S. producers. Now, I mean, U.S. producers have pretty high cost assets, so they'll need an incentive price. How many pounds is that really going to be? I don't know. I'm kind of ballparking. Is it three million pounds, two million pounds a year on that? If it is, it's two million pounds going into stockpile, two million pounds coming out of the ground from energy fuels or UR energy, right? And it really doesn't have an impact on what the U.S. utilities will be doing because it's not about them. It's about the government just buying from U.S. producers. So at the end of the day, that's really as good as we could have hoped for. Um, for the broader market, because there's not going to be a, a massive distortion created by bringing in these high-cost producers and 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 you know forcing U.S. utilities, which are an important group, to buy from them. Yeah, I thought it was an extraordinary period of the world of uranium. That uncertainty, you know, and sentiment around hearsay, um, supposition. And it, it was just, it, it, it seemed a very, very odd, odd way for a market to be allowed to behave for that length of time. Um, but I should say, look, I, I guess at the end of the day, I, I'm kind of almost bored of talking about it now. It's, it, 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 it's fine. There's none of the weird stuff in there. Um, and for Canadian uranium companies, that uncertainty is cleared up. However, we then had a couple of other things um, happen. We've seen a market reset. Um, and then we've had COVID-19, which has just changed things dramatically. And I know it's impacted you on quite a few fronts. So maybe we'll get into that by talking about your quarterlies, your, your, your Q1 uh, numbers. So what are the numbers in there that you want to make people aware of? Well, for the for the quarter, I mean, there's, there's we can look at the financial side of it and we can look at, um, you know, the operational update. So financially, the company was was really successful in raising money during the COVID-19 crash, if we'll call it. And we put some money together, uh, supported really well by uh, strong um, uh, existing shareholders, right? And so the Lundin family led that financing. And uh, we also saw support from a number of the uranium-focused investment firms. And you could really see the way our stock traded, that this was not a fast money deal. Uh, this was guys who were who were happy to own that stock, buying that stock. This stock was free trading. It was issued under a short form prospectus, and so there really isn't an overhang. There's no four month private placement restriction on this. If there was going to be an impact from that financing, we'd have seen it right away. Now it was important for us because it really shored up our balance sheet headed into an uncertain time with COVID nineteen. And so now, when you look at our financials, we've got a really robust working capital position. Uh, and we've got a lot of runway, a runway to be able to figure out when do we, when do we, and now we get into the operational side, when do we start to increase our activities again, and when's the right time to to, to resume activity at Wheeler? And really, that's the the other thing that we have to take from it is we did update on an announcement from the first quarter, uh, where we announced a temporary suspension of our environmental assessment and feasibility study related work at Wheeler associated with that Phoenix ISR development. And all of that motivated uh, by what we're calling social and economic disruption uh, created from the COVID-19 pandemic. 
we've been very focused on safety, uh, safety of our people, but also safety of the communities that we work in, in Northern Saskatchewan. And that's becoming um, an emerging issue. Uh, and that, that's had impacts on the market more broadly. Uh, but we're also focused on financial uh, discipline and, and being prudent. Um, you know, there is, you, there is a point where even though we have that low cost project that can make money no matter the sort of uranium price, there is a point where the cost of capital and the access to capital is disruptive. And it tells us that maybe we shouldn't be going forward immediately as fast as possible, but we do have to find the right time in the market. And so we've taken the pause on the project. One of the important parts of that is that we haven't stopped working. Um, we, we made a really deliberate decision in that announcement, and it's in there um, around what we've done, is we've kept our entire team intact. So there's been no job loss. We, we said, look, we want to put together a new budget and a new plan for 2020 that has everybody uh, working who works on our staff stay with us and be doing something productive. So it's not just that we're paying their salaries. We've got small scopes of work that can allow the team to be productive over the next whatever it is, six, 12 months that we need to be on sort of a reduced uh, workload. That's critical because at the end of the day, we got to get back at this, right? Our resolve around the project has not changed and our objective around building the next new uranium mine has not changed. So we needed to make sure that we could retain those people and have those people work quietly right now in this sort of interim period to set ourselves up to be able to resume aggressively and actively when we get the signal that says we should. And we, we definitely have not seen that be a consensus approach in our sector. Uh, we have seen people uh, go, you know, um, lay folks off or, or, or rejig their management teams in this sort of window, and that's fine. I mean, those are strategies that might work for others. For us, it's about continuity. We don't want to miss a step, and so we're really focused on keeping our team ready. And, and that's really what you get out of the qu quarterlies is we're short up financially, and we're, and we're keeping the team together and moving so that the asset can come back to life quickly. Okay. Thanks for the summary there. There's a few things though. You know, when we spoke um, back, I think it was the 19th of February, share price is about 38 cents. You're about 39 cents today as we speak, I think. Um, so you've kind of stood still. There's been a massive, obviously, dip and re reset in, the, in that time. But you raised your money during that dip. So it's yeah. relatively, hindsight is a wonderful thing, right? But at the time, what was going through your head? You, you raised it at a almost or a year low there. Obviously, now that looks expensive, but what was going through your head at the time? Well, look, I mean, we, nobody knew how um, the uranium market would respond, right? Um, and, and really, the uranium market's what's driven that, that, that up and down in, in the equity values. Uh, we certainly saw liquidity selling uh, at the beginning of the COVID-19 crash. Uh, we didn't hit it right in at that deep depth of it. Uh, we, we did wait for some life in the space and we were able to access that capital, which I think should be taken as a very strong point actually, that, that in the depths of uncertainty, we could put together those kind of resources and complete a financing when many were, were frankly struggling. But uh, you're right, like uh, hindsight is 2020. Um, if we had raised the money today and, and you know markets off a little bit today, it had, it had surged on the uranium stocks somewhat, and today is a weekday, but um, if we had waited, we'd have got a better price. But you know, you got to remember the scale of it too, eh, Matt? Like we raised 
you know, between five and six million dollars US. So the variability in terms of what the price would be on that and the number of shares we'd issue, it really is insignificant. It was more about accessing that capital, showing that we have the strength to to raise that money and shoring it up, not knowing how it would go. Now it's gone great in the bigger picture in that uranium mines have shut down and the uranium price is up. And so we've got some people who've made money on that financing and frankly, I don't mind it if uh, people who supported us in that uncertainty, who are strong uranium industry backers, uh, have made money on the Denison financing. In fact, I'm pretty happy about that because I, we need those guys to be out there telling the story and saying, you know, this is their best stock that they own. Okay, so so let's just remind people of a few other numbers here. So, off the back of your PFS, that that told you what you're you're able to produce at nine bucks a pound, extremely low. Yeah, we've got a we've got an all in fully loaded uh, for Phoenix, estimated at 890 US yep. per pound E308. Right, so one of the lowest in the world, for sure. Yep. Um, a few things you need to get over there. One of the things, well, you went through four things with me. You said yep. you're gonna deliver it in 2020. Just to remind you, what your plan was, is uh, permits, technical finance, and maybe expiration, okay? So the, the permit thing is well understood. You're, you're in a waiting, position for that and the reality is without doing more work on your EIA that that timeline's going out right so yeah, what it, what does that paused. it's paused but yeah. indeterminate to use a phrase yeah. from Kamiko what when do you think you're going to be able to get back at it well it's it's tricky on that point because the the stage that we're at was really focused on consultation and meeting with community members and interested parties around the project. And so you can understand immediately why that would be difficult for us to do in the, in the sort of COVID-19 world, especially right now. We've seen a significant increase in, in the number of cases in the North. And so the timing is bad right. um, to, to move forward. But but that's that's on pause. It doesn't mean that it's linear. It doesn't mean it's one to one, right? It doesn't mean one day we wait is one day longer. Mm -hmm. That's where what our team is doing is so important because consultation needs to happen. But during this, this temporary shutdown, our team is still moving the ball on some of these small and important scopes of work that we have the internal expertise to do, where we were probably relying on consultants before, just as a matter of you know the overall collective strength of a team pushing something forward. But right now we've got skill in-house that's still working on this stuff. So we're, our view is it's not a one-to-one -one loss. Uh, we are expecting that we can revise our schedule, but uh, try to be as close to on track as possible on the backside of this based on the work that we're doing right now. So you know, that's where we, we leave it on the EIS. It is an important part of the project, right? It does, permitting is a critical part of the things we're working on. And you're right, the other part was sort of technical and financial. Those were the streams or channels that we were focused on. Okay, but, but finish off on the permitting thing though. So you're saying it's not linear, per se, um, but this is this is going to delay things. And it was already a big uncertainty in this. When, you know, people, when I talk to people about Denison, first thing they go is permitting. Will they get this thing permitted, right? Mm -hmm. So the EIS sorry, is, is something that's um, an important step, but it's not the only thing. Uh, can you move anything else forward? I mean, when you say you're setting people little targets, little projects to do, I mean, is it meaningful? Yeah, the projects are. I mean, they, they really are taking pieces of work that um, need to be done, getting them done, and also planning how to execute 
quickly when we come out of the shutdown. But but Matt, the thing is, you're right. There is a delay, right? Uh, I mean, you cannot rely on our schedule from the PFS, and we're okay with that. And I think the utilities need to wake up to that, right? Because this should be not just the Cameco shutdown at Cigar, and I'm sure we'll talk about it, but they need to realize that the supply side of this uranium and nuclear energy business is fragile. Um, you know, we, we cannot move the asset at the rate we'd want to during this time. And that means that that next new source of supply is delayed to them. That should be the wake up though, amongst all these other supply disruptions that reminds them that they need to be coming into the market and procuring and supporting some of this development if they wanna have more reliable or more diverse supply in the future. And so we were fine to be able to go out there and say and message like the project is paused. You know, things do not carry on. Uh, the nuclear power plants do. And that's a great part of our industry is that the demand carries on. But the utilities need to realize that the resource sector and mine development and mine production in this market, it's been disrupted. And we don't have that kind of depth that, you know, they will get their pounds anyways. All of this disruption, not just the shut mines, but the development assets, it will cascade. It will mean new production is slower to the market. All of that will push on terms of the price that the utilities have to pay when they do start procuring again. Right. So if I come back to this money you raised, was it, it was about what five point seven five? Is that what was the number? Yeah, five seven five US. Five seven five US. Okay. Um, how are you going to be deploying that? Given there are things that you, you can't do. You've also got, I presume, because Cigar Lake is shut down, the, there's not going to be anything coming in from Wheeler for, for you guys. Not, sorry, not Wheeler, uh, from uh, McLean Lake. Um, yeah. And, you know, you had a couple of sources of revenue there. I think you had UPC obviously doing their thing. I assume the UPC component has not been affected, but McLean Lake has. I mean, how does that all look? Money in, money out. Great question. Uh, we're in fantastic shape that way. Um, we, we actually sold that toll milling stream uh, in 2017. So we, we are not at all affected by the Cigar and McLean shutdown. Uh, we already brought in the $43.5 million from that, uh, from Anglo Pacific uh, in, the, in the beginning of 2017. And that deal is a total pass through. And it's important that, that investors know about that because they know that you know McLean is shut uh, and ordinarily that would have an impact on our financials, but not after we've done that deal. So okay. uh, you will see it in the financials because we have deferred revenue and some accounting around it, but it really doesn't have an impact on our on our financial position. So so we're, we're, we're in great shape uh, on, that, on that part. We've also put out an, a new outlook. So a lot of companies have just withdrawn their guidance. They've said, look, you know, this is uncertain. Don't know how it's going to go. Our guidance is can't use it. Uh, and we'll tell you when we know better. So we shut down the project. We put a, a note out saying temporary suspension of Wheeler's EA. But in our Q1, I mean, we've already got new plans and we've already provided a new outlook and financial plan for the year. And so within that, you'll see that we are funding the, the development team to continue on these scopes of work uh, internally. We're funding our exploration that we, we need to complete by the end of the year under the flow through shares uh, uh, capital that we raised late last year, mm -hmm. and you'll see that we're funding, you know, GNA, right? We've got that cash flow from UPC that's totally intact. If anything, it's increasing because the value of UPC is increasing, and that's a nav-linked uh, fee. 
and then our closed mine operation. Well, good news is that closed mines are still closed and you got to keep operating them. So that, that cash flow from closed mines is, is also steady. So with that financing, we really did shore it up where we're now good. We've got capital for some, some runway and we're not stuck with a, a big hole from that toll milling because we already sold that revenue. Right, okay, cool. And, and talk, come back to the technical component there. So we, we talked about permits there. It's a bit unknown at the moment as it was before and maybe the timeline goes out as long as it goes out, okay? Um, you'll tell us when you when you know. Um, with regards to the technical component, you, with the PFS, you had made some assumptions around the metallurgy there. Again, I think your quarterly mentions that perhaps it, it was a little bit better than you'd hoped. Yeah, we look, I mean, 2019, we, we were spent a lot of time in the field and a lot of our news was around the ISR and uh, hydraulic connectivity and uh, earlier in 2020, and it's kind of been lost because the market has you know, gone all about COVID-19, but we put out two, two really meaningful news releases. Uh, one was around metallurgy, uh, and that had to do with taking intact samples of core that we recovered from all of our field activity in 2019. And so we have long pieces of core, high-grade uranium that we recovered intact, and we, we, put those, we, we took one of those samples as a, as a first test and put it into a specialized um, apparatus, okay? And this is meant to be a true test of in, in situ leachability, rather than using like a column test or a bottle roll test. You know, in those conventional leach tests, you're gonna take that core, you're gonna break it up, pack it into a column, and then you're gonna just, you know, move solution through it and you might agitate it, but it's all broken up and pulverized because you're really trying to check like the overall leachability of that rock. With this test that we've run, that intact piece of core has been stuffed inside a neoprene sleeve, tight to the side of the core. And then outside that sleeve, we've got another canister that pressurizes the sleeve. So actually pushes the neoprene against the core that we've recovered. And that's important because at one end now we'll inject a leach solution and it now has nowhere to go, but through the intact piece of core. There's no space around it. It's not leaching around the outside and this core is solid. So with that pressurized approach, you can push the solution through and it has to percolate through the actual pores of the core. And what we've pulled out of it is, is a leach solution, which number one shows that our, our high grade cores can leach themselves, right? Without being broken up. But number two, we pulled out concentrations that were actually three to four times higher than what we modeled in the pre-feasibility study. And this was really meaningful because it opens up a lot of opportunity. I mean, you have to remember the whole process with in situ is, you know, you're mining the solution, you're mining the rock while it's in the ground and you're pulling up a solution. The solution has a certain amount of uranium. And based on that, you're gonna factor in, okay, how many liters of solution do I need to run through a plant to be able to process out and precipitate out uranium? Well. The variable of how much uranium is in each liter of solution is a pretty important one. And so the fact that we've got three to four times means, well, maybe we don't need a plant that's as big. Maybe our, we need fewer liters of solution to produce six million pounds. Or maybe it means uh, we can actually produce far more than six million pounds a year on the same size of plant. Or even, even more than that, you could look at things like okay, permeability. If it takes longer for the solution to move through the rock, does it affect my economics if I'm getting 
four times the uranium out of that solution. Might be slower, but if I'm getting something higher grade, they can easily offset. And so that just has introduced a whole bunch of operational flexibility to us that tells us the prospect of actually delivering on six million pounds a year from an ISR operation at Phoenix is, is looking up. Now, you got to layer onto it that we also ran, uh, our, released our first uh, uh, quantitative measures of permeability in, in early 2020. And now we had announced lots of results about wells talking to each other and communication, but we'd never really quantified the rate of permeability. And we did put out a news release right around the same time as that metallurgy one that said, we've actually been able to achieve in a commercial well, a rate of permeability that is like very much the same, almost exactly the same as what we've assumed in the PFS. So the ability to move the solution through a, from a commercial well, we've now proved up in, in at least that one well that we can achieve that kind of rate of flow. And at the same time, we've, we've shown in that one piece of core, we might even be able to get three to four times the concentration. So technically, like these results from the beginning of 2020 have been very positive and really support what we're trying to do with the ISR mining. Okay, so the, the EIS, that this is new, better data, which to put in the, as part of the EIS. Do you think, because you did tell me last time that, you know, about 50% of the world's you know, uranium production comes from ISR. So it's, it's a very well understood technology. But do you think you're making headway in terms of telling that story here in Canada, where it's the first ISR project? Yeah, look, I mean, I've talked to the regulators uh, a number of times at the, the CNSC. What are they nervous about? What, what do they say to you, like you say? It, like, it's well understood, well, and you go, okay, it's well understood. But so what are they worried about? Look, they're, they're, they're a really scientific group. And, and I had an interesting conversation with one of the folks over there at a conference. And, uh, you know, he mentioned to me that they were in touch with some of their colleagues in Australia about uh, ISR mining and trying to understand some of the pros and the cons around ISR mining. And we had, we had a discussion and I, and I explained, well, you know, that, that's good. I like that you guys are out there collecting information from other people who are familiar with it. it. Shows me that they're interested in learning about it. Where I challenged him is I said, well, you should talk to your colleagues in Australia and ask them, you know, because I think the feedback was, well, you know, it's a form of mining. There's some good things and there's some bad things. Okay, true. I said, but ask, ask your colleague how, how they would feel uh, about ISR mining with containment the entire deposit contained because most of the issues people have with ISR mining are around the mining solution entering the environment, right? Leaving the mining horizon and contaminating surrounding aquifers and requiring treatment. I said, well, talk to them about what, how they'd feel about it if you didn't have that risk. And, I, and my challenge to the regulator was, I bet you the feedback is going to be, well, if you could do that, that would be very interesting. And, and so my hope is that as we continue to go through this dialogue and we continue to explain to them what we're actually doing, scientifically, they'll really see that we're doing something that just hasn't been done before, but it's not, uh, hasn't been done before. It's, it's a higher standard of anything that's been done before. And I think that approach, right, is where they'll get comfortless. So well, ISR mining does represent half of the world's uranium production. But what these guys are proposing to do is better from an environmental standpoint than any other ISR operation in the world. 
And so that that really should, in my mind, elevate what we're doing and, and increase the level of acceptance. Because when you do go side by side with other mining methods on environmental impacts, I think we're going to come out ahead as being simpler and simply having fewer environmental impacts. And that's where the regulators are really driven to is what are the impacts from your project? Okay. Have you had any conversations or any further conversations around getting this thing funded? Are the Lundins saying to you, I think we could, because you know, we had a conversation back in February. Um, it was a new yeah. story to me. I liked the business model. I thought it was interesting. It was a kind of low, low carpet, relatively low capex yeah. solution with a very low cost um, uh, associated associated with the the production of pounds on the ground, uh, not pounds, getting pounds out of the ground. Um, yeah. it, 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 you know, you've got some neighbours up the road who are needing billions plus. Right. Okay, um, but one of them managed to get ten million bucks from Sprout the other uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Yeah. Um, so people are obviously sniffing around the industry. Whatever you think of that particular deal and the terms associated with it, yours is a much lower cost project. I mean, have people been talking to you? Well, look, Matt, we're we're out talking uh, because we we that was our, one of our streams or one of our channels of things, right? Is to figure out how are we going to fund this. Um, one thing that we're not keen on is is funding it with debt, right? And and we do think that debt is a tricky instrument for developers to take on. Money comes in, money goes out to pay that interest. And if it's in the form of cash or stock, I'm not sure that it matters because, you know, at the end of the day, that's not money that's been put at risk the same way into the company. Our preference is not to go with debt. Uh, we certainly prefer uh, asset sales, uh, that could be part of Phoenix. So talk to me about that. that. Talk to me about asset Other sales. Assets. What have you got? What's on the table? Well, I mean, the company's got a diverse mix of assets from the McLean Mill all the way to, to Wheeler and, uh, you know, our other development assets. We've got interests in Midwest and the McLean deposits. And then we've got exploration properties that have potential. We also have our investments in, in other companies. Right? And while we're not... Yeah, exactly. Goviex, Sky Harbor. Uh, well, we're not keen to sell those. You know, you do have to look at those as the types of things that are available to the right kind of partner at the right time uh, as a way to fund these uh, these investments. I mean, we look at Goviex as having multiple times potential, and then you look at our position in Goviex in a better market, and you think, well, that might actually pay a good chunk of that company's capex for their project. So, I'll ask you straight on Goviex. You think you feel you want to hang on to Goviex? You think that is good that's a good company with good potential yeah i mean we like we like goviex we like our position in goviex i think if, if push came to shove we'd have to take care of denison before we would take care of goviex but at the end of the day our, our hope is that we can get a, a greater return on goviex than where we're at now and use it to actually fund development in the project or take advantage of what they're doing in 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 africa and, and with the uh, matawela and niger and, and perhaps that asset does move forward and there's other things we can do with that position. It's not something that we like, we, we are uh, gonna liquidate if we don't need to. Sky Harbor? Yeah, Sky Harbor, I think we have a similar view. Uh, we have a smaller position in Sky Harbor. I like Jordan, I like what they're doing. Um, I, you know, they're, they're, they're a smaller company. They don't have the same kind of reserve or resource base as GoVX, but I, I like them as a creative partner for, for and we've done a couple of deals with them where where I like the way they operate, and I think they've got a lot of good potential. 
you know, that's not a big position, so it's, it's not one that's going to bring us uh, a whole lot of capital anytime okay. soon. What position would you need to find yourself in to start needing to offload some of these assets at book value or whatever you can get in the market? I think we'd, we'd have to find that the other sources of capital are not there, right? They're really lower on our list. Uh, we'd, we'd prefer bringing someone into a Wheeler River closer to a NAV valuation who sees the merit in what we're doing and wants 10% interest or something like that. We would much prefer that. And depending on the equity values, uh, we, we don't mind equity, but we don't prefer, but we don't really love equity at these kind of values and certainly not where we were, not for the big lumps, right? Like for $300 million, we're not looking to do that in equity. We really want to go to the debt market for the project because it has that high, high operating margin. That, that's our number one, right? Is for, for building the project, Project finance and debt is really well suited uh, for, for Phoenix, just because of those margins. Uh, the, the challenge on that is getting to that project finance, right? We do have capital needs between now and then, and that's where you know the company has got to be a little more creative. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to take debt at this point in time because you don't know what the end point is, and you may be able to get a deferment on debt, like a, a holiday um, to the coupon for a couple of years, but not much beyond that. I don't think banks like that when you've got no site to revenue. So I, I understand that. that, that well, you're gonna have to, if, you, if you take debt at this point, you got to go into those converts and those other kind of instruments where really you've given up a lot of risk, a lot of the upside to the other party. Uh, we, we like project debt, but that really only kicks in once you've got the project to build. Right. I just wanted to say that because it just make clear yeah, the different enough. points at which debt uh, and the different ways that debt, co debt come in. No, really, really good clarification. Um, okay. So... I think you know. I'm I'm happy with that that update. I think if people want to get into your business model and your business plan, I will put a link below in the in the content section to that interview. Um, tricky tricky times, hard times, a lot of juggling for you at the moment. Um, appreciate that, um, but the business model hasn't changed. It's fundamentally, I think, one of the more interesting ones in the uranium space for you know development companies like yourself. Um, so thanks for the update. You know, pick up the phone, let us know if anything anything changes. And, and in the uranium space, I can guarantee that will probably be next week. But um, yeah, uh, thank you. Matt, look, I appreciate the opportunity. And I, I do want to leave just with some um, bullish comments on the uranium sector, if you're okay with that, because um, the, the, the cigar shutdown is, and the Kazakh curtailment in response to COVID-19 is, is a real thing. And um, you can debate, you know, how long-term this impact is and how significant it will be. But one thing you can't debate is that it's a permanent reduction in inventories, the fact that we have this, these, these assets shut down. And, you know, we, we, you know, go back to our last conversation. I mean, we're positive in terms of where the market is going. And it was really rebalancing and on the right trajectory with MacArthur shutdown. Uh, whatever happens with COVID-19 accelerates that, right? And so, you know, while our asset is paused and we're being cautious and prudent and all of that around our business, I am very optimistic about uh, the uranium market. And I'm optimistic with the way the price has moved so aggressively in response to COVID-19, because it does show the utilities and the market players just how fragile supply is. And just how, as there's any interest in this commodity, the price moves aggressively. And so I do think we are getting closer by the day, permanently closer to a point where the market is in a more sustainable place for a MacArthur restart, 
But that means that you're going to have to have prices up in the 40 or 50 dollar range. And when we talk about Wheeler and Phoenix, well, look, I think we can build the project at 24 dollar uranium. I don't doubt that, but it certainly goes a lot easier when it comes to accessing that capital if we are in 35, 45, 50 dollar uranium, right? The margins are just that much higher and our access to capital becomes that much easier. So there, there is some real positive stuff happening in the market and, and I don't see it being uh, the type of head fake we've seen before. I do think the utilities, once they calm down with COVID-19 and they keep the reactors running, uh, will come back into this space. And I think Cameco's resolve is higher than it's ever been uh, to actually buy and clean up that market. So there's really good reason to be paying attention to these uranium stocks. And I'd say people have got to dig into you know, which ones are really positioned for the other side of this, right? And that's our focus is being positioned so that when the, the dust settles, we've actually moved forward quietly underneath all of it. And we can jump on coming back together because our team is intact and they've been working and motivated this whole time. Uh, just as an aside, I mean, I can't tell you how amazing it is to have our people uh, recognize that they're fortunate that we made that decision to keep them all working. And I can see it in what they do day to day because they're moving the ball on these projects and on these files in a motivated way because I think they're trying to show a recognition or appreciation for the fact that we decided to keep them and to keep everybody working and the asset moving forward. It's just something special. I mean, we're all doing Zoom meetings and all this stuff, but I get these updates and the things that people are working on, uh, and I know it's difficult you know, for them to be working at home and all of this, but the level of motivation that I'm seeing out of the team is really amazing. So sorry to give you that sort of, you know, uh, rounded out uh, comment at the end, but I'm, I'm really optimistic about where things go from here for Denison and for the uranium sector. Great summary. Couldn't have done better myself. David, stay in touch, man. We'll speak to you soon. Appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks again. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast? or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.